The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Psych Up Live with your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips. This is the show that brings you a psychological perspective on common and current life issues. Here is Dr. Suzanne Phillips. Hi, welcome. I'm Suzanne Phillips. Thanks for joining me again on Psych Up Live. As we face the persistence of the COVID-19 pandemic in the U.S. with over 3 million confirmed cases and 150 45,000 or more deaths, there's been a recognition by people everywhere of the tireless efforts of physicians, nurses, and essential frontline medical workers to fight this lethal virus, to save lives, often despite limited staff, hospital beds, and inadequate supplies. We have read often, and we even have seen articles about burnout in physicians, We've heard about physician suicide. There were three cases last month. But we rarely hear about moral injury. Today, we're going to be speaking to an emergency room critical care physician who will be discussing the meaning, the cause, and the serious impact of moral injury in physicians, both before and during COVID. Our guest is Dr. Keith Corll. He practices both emergency and critical care medicine and is an assistant professor of medicine in the Division of Pulmonology Critical Care at the Warren Albert Medical School of Brown University. He's an associate member of the Moral Injury of Healthcare nonprofit organization, which promotes public awareness of moral injury in physicians and aims to bring clinicians together to discuss the topic. He has been the author and has also been cited in many recent articles on moral injury in physicians, as well as on the impact of COVID-19 on moral injury. Dr. D- Keith Coral, it is my privilege to welcome you to Psych Up Live. Thank you for having me, Suzanne. Keith, let's start by defining moral injury. How would you define it for our listeners? So, moral injury is a transgression of a deeply held moral belief. And for physicians and nurses, those deeply held moral beliefs are the oath that we took to always put our patients first. Mm-hmm. So in a situation where you don't have the supplies to put your person first because there's a waiting list and people are sleeping in a hallway, or you're not given the amount of time to see a patient that you think you would need, are those the type of things that after the fact would make a person feel like, this is not what being a physician is in my book. Yeah, I think you're highlighting very nicely some of the uh, double binds that physicians and nurses face. And what I mean by a double bind is that um, any day a nurse or doctor or respiratory therapist may serve three or more masters. And, And what I mean by that is they have this duty to treat their patient, and put their needs first. But they also have a boss, an employer that may have certain financial directives that 
directly conflict with that first oath. And then third, they have a duty to themselves and their family to uh, live a happy, productive life. And all, all three of those can be in conflict. And so when a, um, an ER doctor doesn't have enough space to see a patient properly and knows that he or she could be doing better for that patient, um, that's, that's being caught in that double bind. So and that's what's driving that poor laundry. Okay. So then I would ask, well, how is that kind of pressure different than burnout? Let, let's compare moral injury to burnout for a minute. So burnout focuses on the individual, whereas moral injury focuses on the system. And that's the important distinction. Burnout is very real. It's a term that we use very commonly over decades. However, burnout represents end-stage moral injury. And when we zoom back and we, and we ask ourselves, why are nurses and docs and other healthcare workers leaving the profession and why are some committing suicide? Um, it's because it's not because that they're not resilient. It's because they're forced into a system that is designed for them to fail. And probably the biggest driver of burnout, that sort of last stage of, of moral injury, is this unacknowledged, widespread existence of a system that doesn't work for healthcare providers. Hmm. Okay. So I want to just compare it to veterans for a minute because I know people have spoken about and I work with some moral injury with veterans. Maybe there's a there's a comparison. So a veteran could be very, very resilient as most most physicians are. Endless hours. They've trained for years. Now the difference between PTSD is they're caught in a terrifying situation. And there's a persistence of that hyperarousal and the hypervigilance and sometimes the numbing. It's a, it, and they hang on and, and, and they can't, in, in other places, they feel like they're back in that danger. But with moral injury, with military, it's more what happens after the event. They go home from Iraq and they remember that when the car bomb went off and two children were killed, Everyone was horrified, and when they thought they may be able to step down and treat the children, they were told, we're pulling out at this point for safety. And by the time they got home and saw their own kids, they couldn't stop thinking about how horrendous an act and how morally culpable they felt. And over and over again, there's that kind of rumination of not being okay, not being a moral person, not being someone who has the right kind of um, moral structure to be thought of with high regard. Is there a similar parallel in moral injury with docs? I think there is. These, you know, symptoms that you're describing, the the PTSD, um, the depression, uh, some of the uh, things that happen as a result, um, Addictions to substances, these happen among healthcare workers. And, and while I'm not a veteran, um, I can speak from my experience as a healthcare worker, as an ER doc. Um, you know, nurses and doctors see a lot of terrible things. And um, they see 
death and suffering um, on a daily basis. And that may come um, in the form of a terrible car accident or a gunshot wound or more recently COVID-19. And mm-hmm. they, they take those experiences home and I believe suffer similar symptoms of despair and depression that veterans may. Mm-hmm. The, the distinction that we're making with, with moral injury, uh, which veterans are also subject to, is that the healthcare worker recognizes that they could be doing better. Okay. In that mm-hmm. system, in that healthcare system, and when they and when they realize that there is a flaw in that system that is preventing them from delivering that care that they were trained to, that is that is that psychic wound that the the healthcare worker then absorbs, mm-hmm. and is it's lasting. Mm. Keith, let's exemplify it through. I know you did an article on. You called it. Hospitals' new emergency department triage systems boost profits but compromise care. Let's use the ER since you're very familiar with that. How do you see and how, how has the situation put you into a situation where you end up feeling like morally this is not the way I want to practice? So you, you bring up that article and, and what we discussed in that piece was a, a practice that is changing the face of emergency medicine and has been for 10 plus years. And um, that was essentially trying to, the, the practice was trying to move patients more quickly through the emergency department, which sounds like a great thing. You know, if, if you can come to the emergency department, be seen more quickly treated, uh, the patients obviously will take that. And the, the, Hospitals um, are incentivized to do that because it means they can see more patients and generate more revenue for the healthcare system. But the the problem is always in the details and how this is implemented. And what we saw as nurses and doctors was that the care was really suffering. So I guess, I guess to dive into the, the details a bit, but the the specific practice that we discussed in that article was the rapid medical exam. And, and what that is, is you may show up to a busy emergency department and before this new system, you may have to wait three or four hours to be seen by a doctor. If your, if your injury or illness wasn't acutely life-threatening. And that's a, um, a sort of baseline indicator of how our system is stretched very thinly. So under the new new system, what the healthcare consultants were brought in, and they adopted production line um, ideas from lean production and, and Toyota manufacturing, and said, you know, why don't you break up the way patients are seen? And so now they will come in to the emergency department, and they all have a um, nurse or doctor or physician's assistant uh, sitting in the emergency room, waiting room, and they will have a very brief one, maybe two-minute conversation with that patient. Mm-hmm. And it'll be a, a abbreviated history 
you know, why, what brings you to the emergency department today? And the, the patient may say that they have chest pain. And the, the doctor or nurse is very limited in what they can do. And so they take this sort of small snapshot of the patient. And they then end that encounter, and they ask the patient to go back and wait in the waiting room. But then they go back to their electronic medical record, and they order a bunch of tests and x-rays. And some of these tests may be warranted, and, and some of them may be totally superfluous. But what happens now is the patient waits, and while they're waiting in the emergency department, a phlebotomist will come and draw their blood, an x-ray tech may come and do an x-ray, and they'll still wait that four hours, but the mm-hmm. their perception is that they're being attended to. And this creates problems on, on several levels. Um, the example that I used in the uh, article was I was working in a emergency department where a patient went through this system with the rapid medical exam, still had to wait four hours, got a bunch of, came in with chest pain, got a bunch of lab tests and x-rays ordered for chest pain. By the time they got back to the actual emergency department where we care for patients and I saw them, it was about four hours later, I was finally able to sit down and talk with them and do a proper physical exam. And and what that revealed when we could get the patient in a gown and look at their skin was they had herpes. They had, they had zoster Mm. and they had already received a chest x-ray, a a lot of blood work and EKG, none of which they needed. What that patient needed was for uh, a doctor or nurse practitioner or physician's assistant to sit with them, listen to them, take in the full story, and then do a proper physical exam. And that patient could have left the emergency department that day without any of those tests. Mm-hmm. I, I and really so what we did... Go ahead. What we did there was we, we inflated the cost of healthcare for everyone. Yep. My association to your example was my husband being dizzy in Florida, and I'll just jump to the, 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 uh, the main part of the story. Keith... 24 hours later and $10,000 of tests later, he signed out, came back home to New York, went to our physician who said, you have crystals in your ear that have displaced themselves. That's our example of it, which was just maddening. It was maddening. So I can appreciate how maddening it has to be to you when you find that this man has shingles or herpes or whatever, in the sense of what, what it's an illusion that it's a quick system meant to focus on the patient. It focuses, but it over-focuses with a kind of shotgun approach. Is, is that, would you call it a shotgun approach? Yes, and, and, I, and I did, and, and um, it, it supplants listening and, and the practice of medicine with laboratory tests. And if you, if you sit and listen to a patient, 90% of the time through their history and the constellation of symptoms they tell you, they will point you in the right di- direction of a diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Often lab laboratory tests and x-rays aren't needed. So you, you, we've sort of put the cart before the horse, and we're trying to use uh, lab tests and x-rays in the place of time. And you can't, mm-hmm. you can't test your way into being a good doctor or nurse. Mm-hmm. And I think when we spoke earlier about the moral injury, I've shared with you my experience of working with professionals who are just so despairing that they are not being given the time to sit, as you say, with a patient because they are on the clock. Patients are waiting anyway because they have to see 70 patients in a day. Um, so everyone's in the waiting room anyway. And they when, when you get 10 minutes to see a patient and eight of it has to go to filling out charts, I guess I, I've appreciated working with them as a psychologist that the system makes it almost unbearable. And the answer, hire a scribe, just doesn't do it. And, and it's not only that it, the doctors and nurses perceive that what they're doing is fast and loose medicine. You can also cause patient harm through this practice. And so, so the the way I'm going to ask is, you to stop for one minute. They just they just cued me in that we're going to have to take a break. So we well, let's take a break and come right back to the practice that we were talking about. Okay, folks, you've been listening to Psych Up Live. We're very fortunate to be here with Dr. Keith Coral. He is both an emergency and critical care physician, and we're talking about moral injury that existed with physicians and medical staff before COVID-19. We're going to even talk about how it's exacerbated and illuminated by that. Please stay with us. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. On Read My Lips Radio, producer and host, a.k.a. Radio Red, invites you to eavesdrop on her live, unscripted conversations with smart, savvy, creative people as she discovers what makes them tick, where they find their inspiration, when creativity first became their passion, and how their creative process can inspire the rest of us to think out of the box. Enjoy, a.k.a. Radio Red's always lively, cool conversations with creatives. Mondays at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Oh, how those lips can talk. Join Chris Epting every week for the moment. Chris talks to some of the most amazing people you'll ever meet, including authors, artists, and athletes. And that's just the A-list. These celebrities and public figures have interesting stories that all showcase the moments that their lives took a certain dramatic turn, changing them forever and shaping them to be the person that they were meant to be. Listen for The Moment with Chris Epting, Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We all know that today our country is in many ways run by vested interests, which have accumulated large amounts of power for themselves and at our expense. But this can be changed by recognizing the problems 
and then by adopting libertarian solutions to address them. Tune into All Rise, The Libertarian Way with Judge Jim Gray. Judge Gray and his guests will discuss the problem areas of today and then present solutions that result in a better world for ourselves and our children. Tune in Fridays at 7 a.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're speaking with Dr. Keith Coral about moral injury in doctors. Actually, it, it applies to many medical um, specialties. Um, Keith, we were just mentioning that the difficulty with a triage system that immediately sets into motion tests and leaves very little time, as I was giving you some examples, for someone to really just sit and be with the patient is upsetting and certainly morally injurious to docs, but you said it could lead down the wrong trail? Yeah, that, that's right. You know, having test results before you have the chance to sit with a patient and properly frame why they're, why they're coming to the emergency department to begin with can lead you down false alleys that can then lead to unnecessary procedures, more unnecessary tests, and that, that can harm patients. Okay, so let's take this concern we have and add to it the framework of COVID-19. Um, the I think Wendy Dean, Dr. Dean, who is one of the founders of Moral Injury of Healthcare, in one of her articles, she says, moral injury is the invisible epidemic in COVID healthcare. Now, how... How did COVID exacerbate this situation, Keith? Well, I think COVID has made it clear that we've been working in a very broken system for a very long time. And it's allowed doctors and nurses and and other healthcare workers to see that the system's devotion to profit, marketing, and metrics is too often in conflict with its devotion to healing patients. So, as an example, um, what COVID has done is shown the healthcare workers that this covenant between healthcare workers and administrators is broken. We, the the healthcare workers, um, signed up and made a deal to run into the fire, no matter what. And we assumed that our employers would go to any length to protect us, to provide us the needed gear and safety measures to to fight that fire. But now with COVID, we feel like they broke their promise by not providing us enough uh, PPE, which is personal protective equipment, understaffing ERs and ICUs, and in overall overworking healthcare workers. Mm. So you think they actually 
were watching costs and door, not knocking on every door they could to protect you? Well, this, this is a tough situation. You know, doctors and nurses are saying that when COVID started, that we needed to shut down elective surgeries to preserve mm-hmm. PPP. But the administrators, they faced their own powerful dilemma. If they, if they stopped elective surgery, then they risked the financial well-being of their institution. And in a way, this was their own version of moral injury. I, I can't say as a physician what administrators were thinking, but okay. I imagine it was a very difficult position. Mm-hmm. They knew if they continued to burn through PPE, they eventually would put front care, frontline healthcare workers at increased risk of exposure to COVID-19. And they saw, you know, as supplies ran low, that they were going to have to use PPP in unconventional ways. But they didn't really have a choice because approximately 40% of hospitals' revenue come from elective procedures. Mm-hmm. So if, if you stop these elective surgeries, then you're stopping the, the financial lifeblood of the institution. And administrators were worried that they were not their institutions were not going to be financially viable to survive the pandemic. So, you know, they, they may be in a situation where they have only 60 days of cash on hand and they have to make this very difficult decision whether to burn through PPE or to continue with elective surgeries. But if you then zoom out, we have a healthcare system that buckles under a pandemic, an infectious disease. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. Medicine was founded around the study of infectious diseases. And if, if our current system can't handle this pandemic, then I think it speaks to all of us and it tells us that it's, that it's broken. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I can, if I use the military as, as a, um, an analogy or a comparison at the moment, when the troops feel that the leaders do not have their back or will not go to hell for them, that in and of itself is a moral injury. So, I, I mean, when we, all of us who watched the TV and heard about the difficulty with PPEs and then if someone brought their own, they couldn't use it. But I guess that and the number of people who were hired, it seemed like the amount of hours that medical staff were asked to work, their own fear of contamination, their fear of contaminating their family. What you're saying is if we were put into this, if this is what we looked like with a, with a pandemic, what is wrong with such a developed country's medical system? Absolutely. Hmm. Absolutely. Now you, you, and, you, you, go ahead. And now, and now what we see is that our healthcare workers are getting tired. And, you know, nurses, doctors, other healthcare workers are tremendously resilient. And I worry about them crashing because when healthcare workers crash, they crash hard. And, you know, I think we've all seen video and footage 
of um, nurses and doctors doing their jobs in the time of COVID, to say that they're not resilient defies belief. But healthcare workers are on the very edge of that right now. Yes, yes. You know, it's interesting in terms of doing a lot of care. The caregiver, uh, I think it's the Israeli army that when they see that someone on the front line is becoming dissociated or having panic attacks, they come off the line and it's called um, three hots and a cot. It's respite. You you get to eat three meals, rest for a day, sleep, and most people want to go back on the line. They all want to go back on the line. But it didn't even seem like you guys got much of, of a respite and you were back on. In fact, I think you tell the story in that article. Do I have this right? That after you worked, many, you and I think so many docs that I know did a tour of duty with COVID in some way. You did it for a hospital who then wanted somehow you to bill more patients. What was that scenario that you shared in your article? Well, that was leading into COVID. I was on staff at a community hospital, and, and still am. Um, but I had some undo. I had some unfinished charts, and these charts were reviewed by a, a biller, and they had determined that if I answered a few more questions, they may be able to upbill the chart and therefore collect more revenue from the health insurance company. For the patient. And what's common in, in the current medical system is if you're delayed in responding to these questions from the billing agency is to place doctors and nurses on suspension uh, for until that, that chart, those, those queries are remedied. And so uh, as COVID was ramping up, I was receiving uh, emails from one hospital where I had some unresolved billing questions. Um, and ultimately, because I couldn't answer them fully, was told that my privileges would be suspended until they were addressed. And, you know, my, my suspicion is that um, the, the system was just sort of turning without anybody really thinking um, about what they were doing. But in effect, what they were doing was taking a frontline front healthcare worker um, out of the fight just as COVID was getting going in the Northeast. Right. It's, it's almost unbelievable to read about what you've written and, and what, what docs have gone through. You know, people associate doctors with glamour and um, money and et cetera, but the day-to-day work of physicians is really, A, it's life-saving, but B, it's very, very hard under a business model. Now, one of the things that we spoke about in preparing for the show is, and I didn't quite know how to ask this, this is not a matter of, as as your colleague uh, Wendy Dean says, eat more salmon and do meditation. This is a much bigger system. So on one hand, I want to say to you, tell, tell me, tell our listeners what prompted uh, the organization Moral Injury of Healthcare. What does that do for your physicians, your colleagues? How can it help? And then what personally could a physician do to survive a system that really doesn't seem to work in concert with your needs or the patient's needs? So, so moral injury of healthcare, the whole movement is about two years old. And uh, you're exactly right. You know, before um, 
we use this term to describe this broken system which healthcare was healthcare workers all work in, probably about in focus groups, about 50% of physicians would identify as themselves as having at least one symptom of burnout. But in our focus groups, when we explain what moral injury is, we describe how the system, how the, the nurse or the doctor is not broken, but it's the system that's broken and it's, and it's, it's exhausting them. And that's an expected outcome for a system that's not functioning for healthcare workers and patients. And when we explain that to these um, healthcare workers, over 85% of uh, the people at those focus groups then identify with moral injury. Mm. And so you're right. You, you can't, what we've heard before the movement was, well, if we all meditate more or if we exercise a bit more, eat more healthy, then we can adapt to this system and, and, and sort of soldier on. But we realize that those are all temporary fixes. And the only true way to fix the moral injury that's inflicted upon all these healthcare workers is to make meaningful change changes within the system. And is that one of the goals of moral injury of healthcare? as an organization, in terms of lobbying or in terms of um, somehow becoming more visible? We have, we have a couple core uh, goals. One is to value clinicians, healthcare workers, nurses, doctors, physician assistants, because healthcare workers are committed to doing what's right for patients, and they're the, the cornerstone of healthcare work. So we want to give, once again, to value them, give them the tools and resources and the latitude for them to do their jobs successfully. Number two, we want to, again, put the doctor-patient relationship back front and center in the healthcare system. So we need to reinvest in the doctor-patient relationship and disinvest from a system that values quality metrics, relative value units, which is a way of billing, patient satisfaction surgeries, surveys, all these sort of business metrics that have been thrust into the system and get back to treating patients. Mm-hmm. And then number three, we want to build bridges. You know, our, our goals, the oaths that we swore directly align with the patient's goals for what they want out of this healthcare system. But we're in conflict with, or at least at times, nurses and doctors are put in conflict with administrators who may have financial goals that uh, run counter to, to what we've discussed. And so in order to change this system, nurses and doctors and administrators need to, to build bridges to, to better understand um, where everyone is coming from and the different demands that um, are placed on each of these groups and so that we can work together to find solutions that are you know, mutually beneficial and work you know, in modern medicine. You know, we're going to have to take a break, but I, I just had a thought and a question I have not thought before, which is years ago, Keith, were most administrators former physicians and is that not the case anymore? So hold on to the answer because when we come back, we're going to look a little bit closer about 
what changes could possibly be made and, and what docs can do and what they can do in the COVID situation. You've been listening to Psych Up Live with Dr. Keith Coral. He's an emergency room and critical care physician, and he's here talking about moral injury in physicians, and it applies, of course, to many medical workers. He's an associate member of the Moral Injury of Healthcare nonprofit organization. It's meant that organization to promote public awareness of moral injury and to bring clinicians together to discuss the topic and make plans. Stay with us. We'll be right back. America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Moving forward can be difficult to do sometimes. There is always something going on. Many times, nobody else knows exactly what you're going through. If you are experiencing pain or loss, even something unexplained that is missing in your life, you'll want to tune into Go For It with host Joe Hausman. Joe and her guests will show you laughter and love. Sometimes you just need something a little positive in your week. Make that spot Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. A brave heart is anyone with the courage to be of service to others. If you have that courage, then Bravehearts Radio with Brian Reinbold is for you. Even if you aren't yet, you'll want to still tune in to get inspired, create your own story to share, and change your life for the better. Listen to the stories of service and courage shared by amazing guests and your input too. Listen for Bravehearts Radio Mondays at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Remember, doing good anywhere does good everywhere. Have you ever experienced the joy of living? Not just aspects of your life, but the true joy of life itself. Barry Shore has. You could call him an ambassador of joy. From a successful entrepreneur to becoming a quadriplegic due to a rare disease to his ongoing recovery through swimming and physical rehabilitation. Barry now presents his gifts to others as host of The Joy of Living. All you need to do is tune in. Listen live every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're speaking with Dr. Heath Coral about moral injury, the uh, model that medicine is using now, and is it driving our physicians into questions about whether they could sustain in a system that is meant to watch the dollar more than the patient? So the question I had asked Dr. Coral is whether or not in the old days, it was physicians who'd come up through the ranks who ended up the administ- as administrators rather than 
businessmen who are maybe very, very good at what they do, but I don't know that they've been on the front lines. Well, I think, Suzanne, you're, you're right. Uh, 50, 70 years ago, it was much more common to have positions in leadership positions uh, throughout most hospitals. And, and there still are positions in nurses in leadership positions, make no mistake. But what's happened over the last 40, 50 years is that hospitals have formed large healthcare systems and consolidated and become massive corporations. And to run, to effectively run them, you need the skills that, um, you know, businessmen, people who have gone to MBA school, um, bring to the table. And so, um, there needs to be better communication because the businessmen bring a skill set that doctors and nurses don't have. But at the same time, they need to appreciate um, what the healthcare workers need to deliver the care that the patients need and do so in a way that it doesn't, again, inflict that that moral injury. And so they they can continue in that system and, and thrive in that system. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a few thoughts. One is, how do you, those of you who feel very strongly about the system has to change, do you, are you ever in conversation with colleagues who feel like, nah, just, you know, soldier on, you can do it, it'll work? I mean, is there any kind of contention in, in the field itself between people who say, I can adjust to the system, it's okay with me to see the patient less time, I know how to do it? and those who really want it to be a different way of practicing medicine? I think there are, I think there are different strategies on getting through the day. And, uh, and every nurse or doctor lies somewhere on the spectrum. You can uh, go to work and try to ignore all the external forces around you that remind you that you could be doing better for your patients. Uh, and... And on a daily basis, you'll see doctors and nurses MacGyver the system, come up with their own creative fix where the system may ask for 30 minutes of documentation into the electronic medical record, which is just not possible. And so the doctors and nurses find some quick fix to uh, address that demand so they can get back care for their patients. And you, you repeat this process around administering medications or talking with families, getting families in to see their loved ones during COVID. Whatever the, the situation is, doctors and nurses adapt, 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 mm-hmm. and at some point, they, they break. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I think we're all somewhere along that spectrum of trying to to adapt. Um, uh, and and once you realize that the, the system is not designed to put the patient's needs first, and and therefore you you are in direct conflict with your oath to care for that patient in the best way that you know how, it makes it tremendously difficult to just 
continue to, to show up to work and, and operate within that system. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, one of the things that works with the military and other caregivers, and this has happened so much in terms of groups responding with COVID, um, responding to COVID patients, families, you can imagine, I don't have to tell you about the grief and the loss associated and the mental health issues. Sometimes the, the frontline workers like yourself are so fatigued the thought of being in a group or speaking to other people, it's not tenable. On the other hand, we've seen people bear witness the way you are on the show today and feel like, oh, my God, I'm not the only one who feels that way. That's exactly what I'm dealing with every day. So there's always a fine line with how do you help? Certainly the organization as you say, as trying to build bridges, we're on the show because we want people to know about it and the importance of the organization. But how do you and your colleagues, is there any way that you personally support each other as you're patching together ways to respond to patients in the way you were trained to and in the way you always thought you would while you deal with the system? Is there a way that do people talk? Has this organization provided an opportunity to share together? Well, yes. Uh, I think that you're getting at, at two different things that, that run parallel. Just like you described with uh, soldiers, doctors and nurses um, suffer their own trauma and benefit from groups talking to each other, um, you know, both within, among doctors and nurses within the same sort of tribe within the hospital, but also um, in professional settings. Um, and, and that is all um, tremendously helpful. But at the same time, parallel to that, what we're trying to address are the systemic changes that can occur to lessen those insults to that healthcare worker. So, for example... You know, most of the time when I sit in a faculty meeting and I hear that there's been a change to the electronic medical record, I, I cringe because I know <laughs> it's only going to get, I, I know it's only going to get worse. There's only right. going to be another click or another step that I didn't have to go through before, but um, now I have to because of some new idea that's been, you know, forced into that system. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, not, not, t- too long ago, I showed up to a faculty meeting, and um, the our administrator said, "You know, the the paper billing cards that you used to have to fill out in length. Now all you have to do is just put your name on them and the day that you saw the patient." And I can't tell you. I mean, that sounds very simple, but that just lifted my spirits for that entire day. That <laughs> oh, that I can one. See it. Yeah. That one systematic change um, took probably about 40 minutes of clerical uh, work off my um, to-do list every day. And so a simple change like that can make a tremendous amount of difference. Did you report, did you share that with whoever made that change? Oh, it was shared among everyone who was in that meeting. You know, we all recognized... um, uh, immediately, what a difference it was going to make for us. Yeah, yeah. You know, small is big in minutes when you're dealing with people's lives. It's really quite a difference. Um, it, when I thought about the work that all of you were doing, I kept thinking, well, they don't want to get good at adjusting 
to a system they can't believe in. On the other hand, as they're fighting to change it, they've got to have some ways to take care of each other. So be in your staff meetings and in this organization meeting, I assume that that's a way that somehow you at least bear witness and get validation and support. Here's another, here's another example of a, a workaround. When I show up to round in the intensive care unit, I have a full team of residents and, and, and fellows and uh, nurses, and I say at the beginning of the week to the residents who do all the nuts and bolts care for the patients in that ICU, take whatever time that you're spending with these patients writing their notes, whatever time you're devoting to note writing, and cut that time in half or down by 75%. And with that time that you saved, then go and sit at the patient's bedside, talk with the nurses, talk with the respiratory therapist, talk with the, the patient's families, assist the fellows doing procedures. That's where the real care of medicine's happening. And, um, you know, it, it shouldn't be like that because the mm-hmm. electronic medical record it will always demand more. It will always try to suck these young doctors back into the computer, you know, realm where uh, it gives this false veneer of where medicine is occurring, but it's not. That's not where medicine happens. It would be. So my fantasy is that there was a, a research in which someone's doing the medical record and your other residents are doing exactly what you say. And we see in the end who has a better knowledge of the patient and how their decision make tree, making tree goes. Because what you're what you're saying is what I guess I'm biased as a psychologist that by by the end of that up close connection with the patient and everyone dealing with that patient, in an, a very conscious and unconscious way, you know something about that patient that you might not know from filling out the record. Absolutely. So it's, I wish they could do some studies so there would be some data on it, but at least you're sending them a wonderful message. So at this point, what is helping people deal with COVID as we're almost out of time? I want to ask you, and do you have a, a, a take-home message to all the physicians and the other specialties as well as the families that may be listening today? Well, I... I, I again, um, there are bright spots uh, among uh, what's happening in COVID. System changes um, do work. An example is um, governor of Pennsylvania signed an executive order that required daily um, reporting of PPE levels for that state so that all hospitals um, reported what they had in stock to the, to the governor. And this, the way I see it, has shown that that state is thinking about the healthcare workers and has created a level of transparency so that the healthcare workers in Pennsylvania know that the, the government is, is looking out for them to make sure that they're protected. So that's just sort of one concrete example. Mm. Um, we, we invite uh, all healthcare workers to share their stories. We think that, you know, again, um, the moral injury of healthcare is, uh, movement is only two years old and um, our community is growing. And so we invite all healthcare workers to share their stories. They can go to fixmoralinjury.org uh, uh, and, um, and 
share their stories. They can also um, donate to the cause. Um, but by raising awareness, um, we will be able to better position ourselves to um, take the next steps. Okay, it sounds and terrific. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, the, the, the next the next steps really um, are are um, bringing back or, or doing studies um, to show that fixing um, moral injury, fixing the system, is in everyone's best interest. It's in the patient's interest. It's in the doctor's and nurse's best interest. It's also in the administrator's best interest. When um, when a hospital loses uh, a doctor to burnout, the cost of replacing that doctor is five hundred thousand to one million dollars, and yeah. so we're hoping to gather more data to be able to bring back to uh, administrators to build these bridges to, again to show that that this system is not working for patients and doctors and nurses, and that everyone will benefit by addressing it. It's wonderful what you've said. Keith, Dr. Keith Corll, I want to thank you for coming on Psych Up Live. I want to thank you for the day-to-day you work you do with your patients, and particularly for informing all of our listeners about this important, you know, moral injury of healthcare, the organization, the fixmoralinjury.org that people can go to. Thank you so much, Keith, and thank you for all that you do. Thank you, Suzanne. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Okay, I want to thank my listeners. Remember, you can hear this and any prior show as a podcast. By 6 p.m. tonight, this will be a podcast on my host site, my website, and on every app of your iPhone, iTunes, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Amazon Alexa, iHeart, etc. Remember to drop me a comment or a question at radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Mostly until next week, please be safe. Take precautions. Thanks, and be listening. Thank you for tuning in to Psych Up Live. Please join Dr. Suzanne Phillips for another edition of our programming next Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until then, be well and be listening.